then we jump back to 1969 and we see all of that. And our two main characters that we've been following the whole movie are like evaporate from existence. They don't exist anymore. Their whole backstory is undone. Yeah. You know, the butterfly effect where like things change. Like <laughs> yeah. that's what this gets into is where it's like, okay. And I'm not even talking about Aston Kutcher's butterfly effect. I'm talking about like, we're now in a scenario where they have to live their lives. First of all, their children with the minds with of the adults, minds which of is adults, which horrifying is, in the first place. That is a fucking wild concept. And she even says it like, I'm going to, you know, let's I, something I've been wanting to do. And she kisses him and it's like, OK, this is getting weird, man. <laughs> yeah. So you're in this. Yeah. Oof. Uh, and then he has a conversation with his dad. And I'm like, this is so weird. You guys are like the same age in, in mentally right now with this conversation. Yeah. And, and she kind of implies that, like, maybe the memories are going to fade, which makes it a little better because. But then at the end, they clearly didn't lose their memories. They didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Because they remember these two kids. All right, this is where it gets fucky, right? So, yeah. so he, they're adults that have to then go through their lives normally, and they need to follow the same path that they did before, even though Alan was in the jungle, because if anything changes, then then these two kids never exist. I guess. The butterfly effect-wise, right? Well, I don't know. So they exist. What do you mean they don't exist? Butterfly effect, that's the implication, is like you make a small change, and then like some ramifications way later down the line. I see what you're saying. So so just, well, I mean, world history in general, you don't know how you would affect it if, if, that, if that's all true. Well, and Sarah has, again, Sarah has knowledge of, of yeah, she lived possible tragedies coming up, and can she stop them now? And does that, you It's know? like you almost need a whole new movie for like their yeah. lives, and it's a weird one. Welcome, friends, to episode 267 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Chris Van Allsburg's 1981 children's book and Joseph Johnston's 1995 film of the same name, Jumanji. Uh, here we are, James, with another blast from the past, a, a moment of my childhood full of nostalgia uh, with Jumanji, the original uh, Robin Williams film that um, I hadn't seen in many years. How about you? Oh yeah, it had been quite some time for me. Uh, I was curious because we, you know, we've been chatting with the bonus episode we just did. We were talking about 1993's uh, Super Mario Bros. And we yep. were kind of talking about nostalgia and talking about like maybe a film that that we remember fondly. And like this was one that I feel very similarly to how you felt about Super Mario Bros. Sure. for this film. And if you want to hear that episode, it is on our Patreon, a little plug there. Um, it was a lot of fun, and I totally agree. Like, we just recorded that, um, and, and this is a similar kind of vein. I could tell this is, like, a little more mainstream. It has more mainstream appeal. Like, I think this movie probably did well. I don't know the numbers. Um, I feel like this was a big family movie when it came out. Our initial um, critical response was was not great, and then it actually did do well at the box office. Okay, I could see that. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw this movie around when it came out. I don't know if I saw it in the theater. I don't have any memories of seeing it in a theater, but it's possible. Um, it may have been another one of those home videos. As soon as it came out, uh, you know, at the movie gallery or a blockbuster <laughs> up the street, we'd go rent it, and, and that's probably how I saw it. Um, but also this book, which um, I'm pretty sure my mother read to me, because um, like looking at it again, it's like I, I have memories of it. I remember seeing the art 
Um, but this this would have been a time frame where I was probably being read to more than anything else. So I couldn't place whether I had read this book and owned it or if it was something that I like read at school or was like, so, you know, was borrowed it from someone. But I'd definitely seen the artwork before and it's very yeah. distinct yeah. artwork. And it, black I, I and actually, white. Yeah, black and white. And like that, it's like a really interesting textured look. And I, I actually like it a lot for, for Jumanji in general. And this this is such a wacky kind of kid's story that they then took and made a movie out of and fleshed out um, and in an equally wacky way with like crazy effects. You know, this is the same kind of stuff we talked about with Super Mario Bros. Yeah. It's like some of it looks great. Some of it does not look great. <laughs> but this is also like turn of the of the digital age yeah. CG like this is early CG. So we're seeing like practical mixed with CG and some of it looks great. A lot of the sets, like I think of that set where it's just like flooding with water and they're yeah. like climbing all over things. Like that's like very practically that's done. That's an intense set too. All that water, like, yeah, that had to have been tough. You know, I, and I was thinking about how these are some examples of early adaptations that I would have had opinions about as a kid. And like, I wish I could go back and ask myself, at like 10 or 11 years old, like, hey, you remember this? Because like, I, I know for a fact I had read the book before I saw it, right? And so I was seeing an adaptation of this book I had read as a really young child, and now seeing it brought to the screen, like, I had to have had a lot of opinions. I, who knows what they would have been like? I, I would have been curious to hear. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting because it's like the mind of a child is so so different and unpredictable. But uh, I loved this movie. I loved Jumanji. And I loved that it didn't, as an adult, I appreciate it because it, it's sort of like intense for children. Yeah. But even as a kid, I, I identified that and I was terrified of certain scenes and something about that. I think I, growing up, I liked to be challenged in that way. And, and you know, this movie did that for me. And it's terrifying. There's some existential questions that go on in it where you're like kind of thinking about, you know, your mortality and your aging process and becoming an adult and there's time travel in the movie and all kinds yeah. of stuff it, the movie gets pretty wild and then not to mention all the creepy like crawlies and spiders and vines and things yeah. just trying trying to kill you it's it's fun to think about how this has spawned a franchise right like it's just a i big... never would have thought either based on jumanji who would have thought we'd be in the jumanji extended cinematic universe yeah. at this point point? and um i got a share i've never seen any of the new jumanji films i know that, i think there's two now i saw the first remake like this for the well and I think it's kind of a sequel. I saw the first one with The Rock yeah. and Jack Black and Kevin Hart, Karen Gillan. Great cast, by the way. Put together a great cast. And it's kind of cool when it plays with the lore because it's like, you know, it takes place in where Robin Williams was in this. Okay, film. so that was, I, I have a lot of questions about that. Um, so that, I think we should say this is going to be a prime bonus bonus option for our eventual Patreon episode because I, I'm curious so much about where Jumanji is. We don't even know that Jumanji is a city in the movie but in the book it's said to be this golden city that you travel through the through the jungle to arrive at and when you arrive at the city you say the name of the city and that's the end of the game um we don't even get that in the movie so I, maybe they completely changed that maybe it's not a city anymore um i don't know but it's interesting to think about how in the original conception of this it was like a, a city that you arrive at after you leave the jungle it's another dimension is what i thought Kind of. I don't know, man. It's mysterious. And I had a lot of questions about it. And I feel like they were deliberately very vague. Unfortunately, I do think it opens it up to being a little bit racist and a little bit kind of problematic in the sense that it's like it's treating Africa and like African animals as if they're like another alien species. You know what I mean? Like 
oh my god, it's a it's a lion. Like it's a you know, and like yes, it would be scary to have a lion in your house, and like I, it works on that level. But on the other hand, it's also like you know, African animals invading two white suburban kids living in New England. And it's so crazy that they're there. You know what I mean? Whereas, like, there are people who deal with these kind of animals all the time, day-to-day lives. Um, and it's totally not taking that into consideration. It's very focused on that, like, white experience, which I did not think about any of this as a kid. <laughs> fully fully granted. Did not think about that at all. And again, that's why I kind of felt like it was this alternate universe because yes. it's like these... I like that reading better. These vines and plants and spiders don't actually exist. Agreed. The plants were a really cool addition that made it feel more magical, which I really liked. And then, yeah, the the spiders were were abnormally huge. But then some of the other animals, it was kind of playing fast and loose. Like it was like, yeah, there's supposed to be these actual African bats that we hear about. I mean, the, the crocodile yeah. is like a massive crocodile. I mean, like. they can get really big, but it does look it looks kind of fake because just the way it was designed. But um, it looks more almost like a monster. So, like, I like the idea of it being more of a fantasy world. And I assume that's probably what they took it in that direction with like later iterations. But I just want to grant that, like, even within the book, it's a little problematic there. Seems like, yeah, there's some something going on there. I, I like that. I, I read that the sequel is the Zathura, which I never saw. Um, so it's a spiritual sequel, but the book might be. I think the book is a sequel. Um, I don't know about the film. I never saw the film. But like um, in the book, I think it's supposed to be more like sci-fi and stuff, which like that does sound like that lends itself to this um, premise a little easier and, and, you know, less with a little bit less tricky stuff going on. Maybe I, don't, yeah. I haven't read it. But. And and so you'll have to tell me when we get into the, the, the author, but. It sounds like Zathura is a, is a an out and out sequel, and then there are other Jumanji stories as well. Uh, no, from what I'm seeing, it is just those two. Jumanji, Jumanji, and Zathura are the two in the Jumanji series. Okay, that, that's it. Well, I am curious what Zathura is like because I assume it's kind of the same. It's like a board game premise again, and and things are invading. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think just in general. Being a kid who grew up liking board games, I, I was yes. really drawn to this, too. The film specifically, I think the film was really my touchstone for it. And then the book I read at some point, I'm not sure if it was before or after, but I would say this probably has a lot to do with me like enjoying board games as much as I do, too. Like uh, I felt like I, I was always looking for fun board games that were not the typical like sorry life monopoly type games. And I think that some of this might because I was very young when this movie came out, so. Uh, I definitely shaped my idea of board games, and this seemed like such a fun adventure to go on. And then the the other thing I wanted to mention is just like I think Robin Williams' impact on this film I don't think can be understated because he was the heartbeat of this film, and and I love Robin Williams. Uh, I love basically everything he ever did, and I thought he was a brilliant comedian. Yeah, I I do want to give a little bit of a content warning in the sense that I think uh, we're going to talk about Robin Williams and and his suicide. A little bit. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to dwell on it. Just to let people know like that. I think I think it's going to come up as we talk about it. Um, and and another thing that I always love to being a massive fan of like The Legend of Zelda. I love that he was a massive fan of The Legend of Zelda. He named his daughter Zelda oh, after The Legend of Zelda. Yeah, not after, you know, el- other people in history that have been named Zelda, but actually after Princess Zelda. So I thought that was really cool. And, and I've always felt a strong connection to him. He kind of reminds me of one of my relatives that's passed and just... Uh, you know, he, he meant a lot, and I think he means a lot to a lot of people. Um, but I will say something I see online frequently is people kind of going to Zelda and talking about how much her dad means to her, and people should probably knock that off because, you know, she doesn't want to be reminded daily. Oh, you're talking about, about some the of that real person, stuff. Zelda. The real person, yeah. She, she, I, I just, I follow her on Twitter, and I've seen her very frequently have to kind of talk about like how they've had to deal with that. 
and how people, especially famous dads and, and the way that like their, their shadows loom so large and everybody loves them and constantly every daily people will remember or think about them and then want to like reach out to them, kind of put that on their children in a way that, you know, kind of seems unhealthy and, and they've kind of, they've basically said like, as much as you love these people, treasure them on your own. Don't go and make it about their, you know, the children and let them live their lives. Yeah. I mean, and then I totally get that. Um, I, it is like, I, I, I get both sides of it, right? Like I'm sure people are just trying to share their love and how much someone has affected their life and express it to the person that they see as, you know, well, I can still tell that person and they'll appreciate it. Um, but then I can also see just being flooded and overwhelmed with it and just it, it being too much. So yeah, that's a tough situation. Um, uh, yeah, let's let's talk about Robin Williams more when we get to the movie. I have a lot of thoughts. Um, you know, I, I agree. You know, like I think he's he's kind of the heart of this movie, um, and I'm excited to talk about him more. But I think let's focus in on the book before we get to that. Um, that way we can give it its due. This Chris Van Allsburg children's story, which I'm pretty sure I was read uh, when I was a kid. You know, like really young, probably like five. It appealed to me in the same way that Where the Wild Things Are did. And it was a way for me to sort of cultivate and appreciate the power of imagination. And seeing these kids who would be clearly like I, how I felt as a child, getting swept up in imagining things, right? And imagining what it would be like to be somewhere else or to see all these animals or to see dinosaurs or to go where the wild things are, things like that, right? And then getting swept up in adventure. And, and in Jumanji, it's it's a different kind of thing because like Jumanji comes to them. But still, it's like in their house, they're having this adventure. And that idea was so appealing to me. And like as a metaphor for the power of imagination, I think it's it's a powerful one. And it's one that I'm realizing time and again, I was drawn to as a child. Um, I love the idea of that Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Passing through the wardrobe into Narnia is, you know, some kids just like going on a, an adventure of imagination and how, yeah, that that time and again appeals to me. That that portal fantasy, we've talked about it many yeah. times too, right? Like Harry Potter has a bit of that. You go to Hogwarts school. I think it's something that, that kids really click in with. I think it's a really powerful like story structure for this kind of adventure because it, it is like playing with their early imagination and, and what is possible, what could be possible. I responded to these stories a lot as well as a kid. Yeah, and we, we just covered, uh, well, not just, but earlier this year, we covered uh, The Wizard of Oz, where you're transported through a, through a uh, tornado into Oz. So it's all these, like, it's a recurring theme of childhood uh, literature. And, and I'm realizing this year has kind of been a, a year of childhood literature for us. Like, we've covered a lot yeah. of this kind of stuff. I think we're trying to grapple with our childhood. Too. Yeah, <laughs> clearly, clearly. Um <laughs> And to bring it back to the board game aspect of it, um, I totally agree. Like, it's the same reason I love games is they transport you somewhere. And so the idea of this game that is inherently magical and how you play it and it and it comes in and it's kind of scary and it's kind of threatening. But by the time you finish it, everything goes back to normal and you're safe. So that's a very accessible way to do it, especially for a very young child. And yes, this game um, is incredibly uh, simple. But it's easy to understand in that regard. It's literally just roll dice and progress through the game. Because uh, at first I was thinking like, oh, we should, I should, I would love to play this game. And then like the more I thought about it, I'm like, this game sounds super boring unless you are actually having real creatures arrive or something. That'd be the only thing to make it interesting. Totally. Yeah, I did find that they they did release um, a, a game, board game version alongside the film, and then they re-released. I also it. saw that online. <laughs> 
Yeah. If we're going to talk about board games for a second, because we both like to get nerdy about this sure. kind of thing, uh, the rules are loose. There's a bunch of different things that I saw online about people talking about, like what happens if two two pieces land on the same space. Yeah. That's never addressed in the film. There's a lot of questions I have for the film version of the game. <laughs> people have analyzed the the board in itself and seen that they don't they're not equidistant. So some of them are closer to the finish than others. Oh, interesting. Um, and as a kid, all I could think about was the fact that if you just rolled the dice fast enough, you could just like speed run through the game and get get out of all of these situations very quickly. Because it seems like you progress. Like if you just both, if you're, if all four of you just like throw dice, throw dice, throw dice, throw dice. There's like yeah, a monsoon, a stampede, <laughs> all these things hitting you at the same time, but they possibly will all disappear if you're if you're fast enough. Yeah, it's it's uh, that would be a strategy, but you also have the the yeah the the potential problem of having everything hitting you at once and then um, you die because. Apparently, like some of this stuff's quite dangerous, um, as yeah. we see in the movie. Um, well, let's focus in on the author a little bit. So, uh, you 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 actually may be familiar with this author from things outside of Jumanji because he is also the author of the Polar Express, which is another book wow. I read uh, as a kid and loved and got an adaptation. Yeah. That's wild. So he Zathora, I was I was familiar with as well. I think Zathora got adapted based on the success of Jumanji. That's that's crazy to think he did this as well. Yeah. Polar Express was 85, Jumanji 81. So uh, he followed it up. And then I think uh, Zathura was a little later. Um, so he was born in 1949, still alive. He's uh, Chris Van Allsburg is an American illustrator and writer of children's books. Um, all three of those that I just listed were later adapted into successful motion pictures. Uh, for his contribution as a children's illustrator, he was a U.S nominee in 1986 for the International Hans Christian Andersen Award, which is the highest international recognition for creators of children's books. I didn't realize that he was the illustrator as well. Yep. That's pretty amazing. Also the illustrator. So Van Allsburg uh, was born in East Grand Rapids, Michigan to a Dutch family. He would go on to attend the College of Architecture and Design at the University of Michigan, which included time in art school. He majored in sculpture, learning bronze casting, wood carving, resin molding, and other techniques. He graduated from Mich uh, the University of Michigan in 1972 and continued his education at the Rhode Island School of Design, where he graduated with a master's degree in sculpture in 1975. After graduation, he would set up a sculpture studio, uh, but he would struggle for a time uh, to make money and make ends meet with that studio. Um, at home, he began a series of sketches that his wife thought would be suitable for children's books. So she showed his work to an editor who contracted his first book, which wound up becoming The Garden of Abdul Ghazazi in 1979. Uh, Van Alsberg has since written and or illustrated 21 books. His art has been featured on the covers of an edition of C.S. Lewis's series The Chronicles of Narnia, which is published by HarperCollins in 1994, uh, as well as in three children's books written by Mark Helprin. So those Chronicles of Narnia covers, I actually think I might have had those versions. Um, because I totally like I realized when hearing that 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 his art style totally vibes with my memories of the covers of those books. Interesting. I'm gonna have to check those out. I also read that he was a visual developmental artist in 1989 on a film called The Little Mermaid. When did Little Mermaid just come up recently? We were talking about uh, this. Pinocchio. Oh yeah, Pinocchio. Pinocchio. You're right. They went back and talked to the people who did Pinocchio when developing uh, Little Mermaid for the underwater techniques. Right. Um, so I, I, you know, I think it's pretty cool. Like he's had a storied career, had a lot of success for a children's author. His art was really meant to be more sculpture and like architecture and all this stuff. But then he ended up doing these sketches that you know his wife saw and was like, "These would be good for a children's book." And like that's how his career as a children's author 
got started. Like such an interesting way to get into it. His art is very distinct in the way that it almost looks like like sculpture. It's very or clean, or, right? Like clean lines. Like and yeah. then there's like a noisiness to like the shading and the way right. that it, I don't know. But I, I, I guess I mean in the, the like the proportions are realistic, right? Like it's not yeah. cartoony. It's it looks kind of like what you would imagine it would really look like. And like the rooms, like I can kind of tell he's got that architectural design because. Often the way the rooms are depicted looks almost as if someone's put a camera in an actual room, right? Like it's very specific, like 3D environments that that are that are fully realized. Um, and that's yeah, that's that's cool to see that that style. It, it is a kind of an interesting one for a children's book, which I would imagine would tend to be more cartoony. But this is totally the opposite, like opposite of Dr. Seuss, right? Yeah, this feels like the kind of book, too, that I would read to a child, you know, like, I think I think, you know, if I have a child someday, I'd read this to them. And I think there's something to be said for that, like even adults reading something and saying, like, I think a child would would, you know, this being on the list, I think is notable um, and maybe says something about like how we feel about the book in general and how much we enjoyed it. I don't I, I'm speaking for you a little bit, but yeah, I could see it, man, it, 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 especially for a very young. I think it's not very scary. It's uh, very easy to get into. Uh, honestly, I think it's it's something that a kid is going to outgrow pretty quickly, and I, I think I did. Um, whereas something like maybe Where the Wild Things Are has a little more lasting appeal. Dr. Seuss, like I came back over and over again to Dr. Seuss in a way that I didn't with this book. Is it is it the absurdity yeah. the the for the Where the Wild Things Are as well? The art is so fun and imaginative that I feel like there's something you can you, you, you coming back and looking at it again you can like find more nuances in a way that the rhyming convention as well the yeah. way the writing is done and, and Seuss that's true the writing here was was pretty straightforward it was just a tale like there wasn't rhyming there wasn't a lot of like playfulness with the prose that like Dr. Seuss was so great at yeah and Marie Sendak had uh, with with uh, where the wild things are like I I just Something about the art style really stuck with me with that as well. And it's like borderline horror creatures at times. And And they're monsters, right? Yeah. Yeah, I felt myself going back to that one more as well. Yeah. But this was one that I did appreciate as a kid. And I definitely remember thinking about, you know, it's like, oh, that's right out of the book. The lion, that's right out of the book. I remember having those thoughts and uh, appreciating seeing them and then also having opinions about like, some of the additions that they make to this yeah. movie. You're like, as a child, you're like, the mise-en-scene just does not correctly depict my imagination right. in this in this scenario. Yeah, I, don't, I totally thought that because I definitely yeah. knew what that meant and, yeah, still do. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah so, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't feel like there's a lot to talk about with the book as far as, like, what actually goes down. It's pretty similar to the movie, but just very bare bones. We don't have any of the, like, time travel elements. There is no um, character, Alan, who gets taken for 26 years. Like, that's all movie edition. Um, it's just the kids playing the game. They run through it, and then at the end, everything goes back to normal. There is, like, a lava sequence where hot lava comes out of the fireplace that's different than the movie. Um, there's a snake. That could have been very, very cinematic if they had included yeah, that. There's a snake that isn't in the movie, like, uh, which honestly, like, I'm glad cause I am scared of snakes. So I'm kind of glad snakes didn't make it into the movie. We do have spiders, which, uh, is like another, you know, fear a lot of people really have. And I definitely don't love them. Um, but they look so kind of big and silly that I don't think they were really that scary to me, but maybe as a kid, I don't know. It's, it's a fun little book at the end. The kids, the parents come back, don't really believe them. They laugh it off and then they get rid of the game. But then uh, we end with two other kids finding the game. So there's a similarity there with how the movie ends up ending too. 
Part of the book I think stuck with me as a kid, I can remember responding to this, was them putting it back where they found it and then other kids finding it. And it sort of the, the Jumanji <laughs> virus continuing on. Jumanji yeah. virus, I like it. I do like that Peter in the book is like, this is boring. I don't want to play this game. And <laughs> when he hears about the rules, because um, that would have totally been like, when you hear about the rules, you're like underwhelmed. You're like, we just roll dice back and forth until someone reaches the end. That's not fun. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's not until There's no you strategy. start to get the surprises. <laughs> I, I really am curious about what this board game can be like. Was it fun or was it just like roll dice until you make it to the end? I mean, there there are a lot of games that are kind of party games that are roll until you make it to the end, but there's a there's an element of something there, right? Some challenge. What was the game I used to play the shitload? Uh, Candyland? Candyland. Yeah. And that was basically a, a, a roll, but you got to pick your path a little bit, I think, and there was some... You play any shoots and ladders as a kid? Yeah, I played shoots and ladders, sure, yeah. yeah. It's kind of similar to you that. Know, that but... kind of thing. You you progress forward, but then you can slide back. Yeah, and that but it's kind like of thing, less so. involved in either of those games, right? It's like even more simplified. Yeah, yeah. At least on the surface, from from what we see in the in the book and the movie. But I'm curious. The Again, challenge they... is surviving the the creatures that are all arrive at your house. <laughs> yeah, they adapted the board game, so I have to assume there's some element of challenge somewhere that they introduced. But yeah, I don't and know. I like the uh, the prop as we get into the movie, like of the actual game. Like I thought it looked pretty cool, right? Excellent. Yeah. Really creepy with those drums too. Like just <laughs> only some people can hear it, and and yeah. Like, yeah, it's kind of speaking to them. Okay, so moving into the film now, um, I guess we'll start with we've kind of already given some of our general thoughts, so let's just jump into the filmmaker here. Joseph Eggleston Johnston II is an American film director, producer, writer, and visual effects artist. He is best known for directing effects-driven films, including Honey I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, Jumanji. Jurassic Park 3 and Captain America the First Avenger. He did Jurassic Park 3? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can see it a little bit with the with the crocodile effect. <laughs> what about the talking raptor in Jurassic Park 3? Alan. My favorite, Alan. My favorite, another Alan. My favorite part. <laughs> I mentioned that he is a visual effects artist. Much of the work at the beginning of his career combined design and special effects. He began his career as a concept artist and effects te technician on a little film called Star Wars, uh, <laughs> directed by George Lucas. He co-created the design of Boba Fett in The Empire Strikes Back and was art director on one of the effects teams for the sequel, Return of the Jedi. His association with Lucas would later prove fruitful when he became one of four to win an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects for Lucas and Spielberg's film Raiders of the Lost Ark. Johnston continued to work on many films as an effects expert. That's cool. That's some interesting bona fides there. Some iconic films. What a background in visual effects, yeah. man. I mean... You can't. It doesn't get more much more iconic than Star Wars and Indiana Jones with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Yeah, working with Spielberg and Lucas, you're yeah in good company there for sure. He uh, was the associate producer on Willow. He worked on two mid '80s TV movies that were that involved Ewoks, and he actually also was the author of a Star Wars novel, The Adventures of Tebow: A Tale of Magic and Suspense, which ties into Return of the Jedi. Say The Adventures of Tebow. Like T-E-E-B-O. So say, I think that... Not, uh, Tim, not Tim. That was when I was in college. I was watching that every yeah. Saturday. The Adventures of Tebow, yeah. <laughs> Great show, man. Good, t good times. Um, in 1984, Lucas gave Johnston a sabbatical with salary and paid his tuition to attend the USC School of Cinematic Arts. Johnston left after a year saying he, quote, was asked not to return because, quote, he broke too many rules. Interesting. <laughs> so, so Lucas paid for him to go to USC while on salary and paying for his tuition, and he and he ended up not finishing. But it doesn't seem to have affected his directing career. So he made his directorial debut in 1989 with Honey I Shrunk the Kids, which 
I loved that as a kid. I don't know about yeah, you. Yeah, totally, man. I was I loved that. And you know they made a fucking TV sh- series out of that as they ran for like one season. Live action or, or animated? Live action. No, I didn't know. Yeah. That. I remember Honey I Blew Up the Kids. It, uh, the TV the TV show is bonkers, man. Interesting. But yeah, again, special effects in that, you know, you think of the kids like fucking tearing off a piece of what what are they eating a Twinkie or something? That they're tearing off pieces of and feeding it to an ant. Oh Do you yeah. You remember what the food was in? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Something like that. I love that movie. Some some sweet treat. I forget. Oh, oatmeal cream pie. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Oatmeal cream pie. So great movie. Love that one as a kid as well. He also directed The Rocketeer, which was a commercial failure. I'm, I I like that movie as a kid. I remember enjoying yeah. it. I haven't seen it in a very long. You know time. what was also fun with that one was there was a video game, at like version of The Rocketeer that we played the shit out of. Nintendo or yeah I think it was on, or Super Nintendo maybe cool never played it but I'll have to check it out he also uh directed the page master with Macaulay Culkin uh which was like kind of animated and live action oh, shit, I forgot about that movie yeah he's he's all over the place he directed all of this stuff wow and again uh, often very visual effects heavy and it's so uh, funny because when I saw directed by Joe Johnston like I don't look up any of this stuff so I can be surprised on the episodes but I remember thinking like I wonder if this guy directed anything else. You know what I mean? Like, because like, the name did not seem familiar to me, but he's done a ton of stuff. Wow. A ton of stuff. He also directed, uh, he he got away from effects driven action movies and he, he directed October Sky, which was like a personal movie for him. If you've seen that with Jake Gyllenhaal, young Jake Gyllenhaal. I don't think I like have. Space exploration. Um, early, early space race stuff. Okay. And he then directed Jurassic Park 3, which made an insane amount of money, but we kind of know the, yeah. the story of Jurassic Park 3. Yeah, I mean, that whole franchise has not necessarily gone the best places, and I, that was kind of the beginning of the end, I think, for the, for that. Although it's made plenty of money. It made plenty of people rich. Continues to, yeah. And, it, and you know, these Jurassic World movies, like, I remember the first one coming out and just feeling like it was so commercial and, and like... Uh, Rehash. And then, just can- and then they made two more, and I couldn't believe how... Could, you know, if you make a billion dollars with a movie, I guess you're going to keep making them. He also directed the Western Hidalgo. Oh, wow. I did uh, see Hidalgo. Vigo Mortensen. Yeah, you've seen like everything this guy's ever made. And I had no idea. That. That's so funny. Yeah. Uh, the 2010 remake of the 1941 horror classic The Wolfman was also directed by him, which I've seen. Oh, shit. Is that with... um <laughs> Benicio Del Toro. That's who it is. Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. Emily Blunt and Hugo Weaving. I, yes. I've read the novelization of that film. Wow. Uh, we covered that in my grad school as we were talking about different, um, different. I guess so I like assume you've seen it. Then, horror novels. Right? Yes, I've seen the movie. So we covered that. We watched the movie, and then we. I read the novelization of that one. It's pretty interesting. I remember, uh, you know, I remember all of these movies coming out really, but uh, I remember the Wolfman coming out, and, and that like, does have some good effects in it. Yeah, it does. And I remember getting excited for it and going to see it, and it's just like when you compare it to the classics, it's a little yeah. Benicio you know, del Toro and Anthony Hopkins. I mean, come on. Insane. Yeah. And Emily Blunt and Hugo Weaving. Crazy cast. Great cast. And then, yeah, he would go on to, again, direct a little movie called Captain America, the First Avenger, which was basically the last movie before we went into The Avengers, which made a billion dollars. So That's wild, man. I can't believe I didn't recognize his name. I'm embarrassed. I, yeah. I think it helps that it's a very, like, vanilla name. <laughs> yeah, white, white name. <laughs> Just a white dude name. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I think it's been interesting because I remember people really not liking Captain America, the first Avenger when it first came out. 
And then as time went on, people came to appreciate Captain America a little more. And I think in hindsight, they liked that movie a little more. It is it is kind of quaint for for those time periods. But there's like some of the montages with World War Two. And I think people people have come around on it a little bit. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's any one of the best MCU films. It was for the longest time. It was probably my least favorite. Um, granted, I hadn't seen a lot like I hadn't seen Thor 2 yet and stuff when I used to say that. Um, I still don't think it's my, you know, one of my favorite of the MCU movies, but, um, I did, I saw, I saw it a second time when I went through the MCU films with my wife and I remember liking it more the second time than the first time. So it did grow on me a little bit and it's like, it it grew on me as I had experienced more with the characters and then looking back at captain was like, I, I never really liked cap that much. Like he, he grew on me over time, but I absolutely love him. I absolutely from the comics though. I absolutely came in. That's the thing. I, I, I always found him to be the least interesting character. Like whenever I'd play the video games, it was like you get to pick, sure. pick which Avenger you are. I never wanted to be Captain America. I was like, it's so boring. <laughs> I mean, if you don't, if you're not familiar with the character, it does seem pretty vanilla. But he, uh, yeah, he's just like. Uh, I mean, everybody knows about Captain America these days. But my point is just that it's got good bones. That film, and and you know, it's cool to see Johnston directed that, and and a lot of these other films that we've seen. Basically, everything he's directed. Um, more recently, he directed Not Safe for Work in 2014, and I guess he he came in at the in the 11th hour for a movie called The Nutcracker and the Four Realms, and he, he directed reshoots and oversaw post production, and you know came in to try to save that movie. Okay, interesting. I haven't heard of that one. Uh, neither had I. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did you see anything about his specific like why he decided to do Jumanji uh, and like what a, anything that attracted him to this picture book? Well. I heard so he wasn't the person who actually like optioned the book and, and started to try to get it made. So Peter Goober is this like executive producer kind of owns a, you know, a media company that gets films made. He was visiting Boston. He invited Chris Van Alsberg, um, who lives in Rhode Island to option his book. Like basically they met up and Van Alsberg wrote one of the screenplays for this film, which he described as, quote, sort of trying to imbue the story with a quality of mystery and surrealism. Van Ellsberg added that the studio nearly abandoned the project, if not for his film treatment, which earned him a story credit, given it added story material that was not from the book. Uh, TriStar Pictures agreed to finance the film on the condition that Robin Williams plays the starring role. However, he turned it down originally uh, because the first script he was not happy with. And then Joe Johnston at that point came on and he also invited screenwriters Jonathan Hensley, Greg Taylor and Jim Strain to do extensive rewrites. And then Robin Williams agreed to be on. So a lot of different moving parts to try to get this financed and made. Uh, Johnston had reservations at first about Robin Williams because he felt like his reputation of improvising wouldn't he wouldn't follow the script. But when push came to shove, Williams understood that it was t- a tightly structured story and he didn't go outside the lines except when given permission or he would he would they would have one in the bag that was definitely good for the scene. And then they would shoot something else that was more improvis- improvisational. That's cool, man. I mean, it's lucky, but uh, you got you got a big book that is probably doing really well. Uh, you know, it's going to be a target. Um, and yeah, it, it seems pretty straightforward as an adaptation i mean they do add some interesting elements that are creative um and are a little out there um as as we can get into the actual plot of what goes on here but um overall like i had a good time with this movie um i do think some of it some of the acting especially from the kids it's a little cringy at times um and i'm speaking about like the 60s kids in particular like the original version of alan i think you never does 
I don't want to shit on him. He was very young, but like he, he was always just kind of, eh. um, the newer kids, Kirsten Dunst, Kirsten Dunst was good. I think she, um, she carried it a little bit. She, um, she had just come off of interview with the vampire, by the way, it was 94. This is 95. So we've actually already talked about how, how amazing she was. She looks much older in this in comparison. And it's a year, man, or a year or two. I mean, who knows when filming, it could be two years or something like that. But like, you know, when you're that age, a couple of years is big. <laughs> Goes quick. Yeah. yeah, she she was great. I just just to say I, that the actor who played Alan, young Alan, I always felt like I was able to put myself in the shoes of the character. So like credit to him for that. But yeah, I, it is it's just difficult when you're a kid and you know you don't know the direct the direction that they begin. They just don't have a lot of life experiences. So it's it's kind of like you know you're doing your best out there. It's clear when somebody like Kirsten Dunst like has it and and like is just nailing everything and it's kind of this. She she seemed very capable as an actor. I think there's a reason she went on to be the star uh, from from all these kid actors. She's the one that we we know about today. Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, as far as performances go, I, I just didn't think there was a lot to to really sink your teeth into until Robin Williams shows up, which he only shows up about 20, 25 minutes into the movie. So um, when he finally showed up, I was like, finally, like, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I was like, so I was ready. It was for less. It. I think up to that point, it was less about the characters and more about the game. Like the game was sort of the propulsion. It's a lot of setup, honestly. Um, there's a lot of setup because we get multiple like timelines, three different t- timelines yeah. going on. So we originally and it's wild because it's like you would you think, almost don't need that 1800s one. No, like, no, I, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. It's just that he we are familiar with it. I don't even. Yeah, you don't need you don't it, need honestly. it. They could just but, find it buried and you wouldn't need to know that like a couple of kids put it there. Yeah, you know, I guess it builds up some of like the the mystique around it and some of the danger because they're like putting it in a chest but again, and like, stuff. And you would you would provide all of that all like your yourself. I, I do. I, I like it for the fact that I'm a sucker for especially back then. I was a sucker for just like seeing an older time period. They just wanted to have like horse and buggy and stuff is really all it was. Is they wanted to have like lanterns. Well, and, and it's funny because it's like it's two children, too. So like it's funny how it's always children, right? Well, Jumanji calls to them. The game calls. to Yeah, them. I guess that's true. The 60s whole time frame and like start, that feels like some of the weakest stuff. And so I feel like it's kind of tough to include that at the start of the movie. And um, I don't know if you're going to read a you want to read a plot thing maybe before we get into this. Sure. Yeah. Let's let's just jump into it from where we're at. So in 1969, Alan Parrish lives with his parents, Sam and Carol in Brantford, New Hampshire. One day he escapes a group of bullies and retreats to Sam's shoe factory. He meets his friend Carl Bentley who reveals a new shoe prototype he made by himself. Alan misplaces the shoe and damages a conveyor belt, but Carl takes responsibility and loses his job. After the bullies attack Alan and steal his bicycle, Alan follows the sound of tribal drum beats to a construction site. He finds a board game called Jumanji, which was buried 100 years earlier and brings it home. That night, after arguing with Sam about attending a boarding school, Alan plans to run away, but his friend Sarah Whittle returns his bicycle. Alan shows her Jumanji and invites her to play. With each dice roll, the game pieces move by themselves, and a cryptic message describing the roll's outcome appears in the crystal ball at the center of the board. After Alan inadvertently rolls a 5, a message tells him to wait in a jungle until someone rolls a 5 or 8, and he is sucked into the game. Shortly afterward, a swarm of bats appears and chases Sarah out of the mansion. Yeah, so let's talk about this, because I think the, the this 1960s, 69, I guess it was, um part of the movie i think is some of the weakest stuff um and when you see him go to the factory interact with his father 
the whole thing with the shoe is kind of weird to me. I I didn't I wasn't even clear what time we were in. I don't know. There must have been an establishing where it said the year, but I guess I missed it. Sixty nine. It did. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was like, what time are we in? Like, and he's got this shoe. And then um, looks very 80s like it's going to be, yeah, which they're playing with. Right. Like it's going to be he's had the Air Jordan idea before Air Jordans were a thing. And he like the kid puts them on the conveyor belt and they exchange this weird look where like um, this character, Carl Bentley, takes the fall for him. And I was like, what? Like I, I. I was confused. I always hated this part as a kid too. It bothered me a I lot. I was confused by it. I'm like, what? What is even happening? Does Does Alan realize he made a mistake? Because it made it seem like it was a complete accident. Yeah, I think he knows, but he's afraid of his dad, and and he didn't want to confront him. And that's the implication I got is he's so afraid of his dad, and then like I guess Carl knows that, and is like, we just know we're just supposed to know that Carl's a nice guy, and is like taking the fall because he doesn't want to get Alan in trouble bizarre and i'm like and then again i i was always like why couldn't you just show him the shoe and be like pretend it wasn't all torn up look how cool the shoe is yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know what i mean like i don't know dude it doesn't make a lot of sense um it, it, very weird yeah so the father jonathan hyde here he's so like distant and his his um he's rich right and his his father you know there's they're the, this parish family and he's he they live in this fancy mansion um which is part of the appeal of this movie i think it's also like there's a little bit of a haunted house vibe early on we get to see this expansive mansion and um it's a a cool set that we're going to kind of destroy as we go throughout the movie um so that all works in this in that sense but like the thing that i was bumping up against as a modern viewer was i felt like a lot of the values that the father is trying to instill are pretty toxic and the movie does a little bit of like analyzing that and pushing back on them um as as robin williams character like later realizes oh i became my father and i didn't mean to be and he tries to kind of push back on him but ultimately the message gets gets kind of twisted up because he goes back to like following his father's footsteps anyway and um kind of lean into the life that his father wanted him to have. And like, it's this return to status quo and this return to like, it kind of like you shouldn't go against what your parents say, listen to your dad. And then there's a lot of like, be a man. Don't, don't um, take, you know, take it like a man, like all this stuff about like the, the bullies and just, there's just some, some tricky gender stuff that is very dated to me now as a modern viewer. And I'm just trying to like, get that out there is like watching it in 2023. I have different feelings about this. And I'm realizing that a lot of this shit like sinks in when you're a little kid and gets into your head because the movie doesn't do enough, in my opinion, to like counteract that. And instead it, it lets you sit with a lot of those ideas and make you feel kind of guilty for them in a way. Yeah, I think it deals with it. It's a little subtle for a kid's movie in the way that it deals with it. I agree. I don't think like I think that his character, his obvious like second appearance being this like hunter who's in the woods who keeps telling him to be a man, be a man, be a man. And ultimately, that's not like we see it in the reaction of of Robin Williams character, Alan when he's dealing with this other little boy and he thinks he's like becoming him and everything like that. He, and he, he's like kind of lampshading it by talking about it. And then, yeah, maybe he's not doing enough to like counteract it, but he at least like hugging him saying like he, he realizes what he's doing and then he hugs him and says like, it's okay to cry. It's okay to be scared. And then nearing the end of the film, when he's talking with his dad, his dad's like saying he's sorry and stuff too. So there's like this weird arc 
that they're trying to get across the finish line, but it doesn't quite land. Yeah, because it's like as long as you apologize for your behavior and kind of like wink, like we're gonna we're we're gonna have this tender moment, but then like it doesn't seem like anything's really changing. It was just kind of like a moment of apology. Yeah, I don't know. He seems like at the end of the movie, he definitely seems like a different individual than his dad. Like he de- he seems like, and it seems like his dad's he's still in contact with his dad, and maybe they're a little more playful with each other now. I don't know. I'm reading between the lines here and trying to trying to play devil's advocate because I don't think that they do a great job of it, but. It's it's still like the the idea in the 90s of trying to say, like, we're not like our, our dads in the 60s. Like we need to be more uh, understanding and have feelings and kind of uh, approach these emotions. They were trying to do that in like a 90s way. Yes. That I think, like you said, to it to a modern audience isn't quite enough. It's like well-meaning, but it doesn't it doesn't do enough, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Like it falls short of where I would want it. But I'm just being nitpicky, man. Um I just want to say too, like as a kid, I responded to a lot of this. Like the him being sucked in was fucking terrifying. That's scary, man. Because the way it like pulls it, like he gets spaghettified, <laughs> and that's it's some fucking scary terrifying. Shit. <laughs> I would need therapy as well, just like the other character. Like I, you know, I would, I'm an advocate for that in general. But I mean, Jesus, if you see somebody get fucking sucked in like that, that's terrifying. Then the bats are chasing you. But it, I always was like, God, you just throw the dice on the way out or something and hope you roll a five or eight or whatever. Like, I always felt so bad for this this time bleed that he gets. It's like, you know, it makes me think of like Interstellar now too, like the way that like you just see these years go by and you're like, oh, yeah. the childhood and everything. And then we'll approach like how this this <laughs> doesn't deal with the implications and and the like consequences of all that time going by at the end. But we'll get around to that. 26 years later, Judy and Peter Shepard move into the now vacant parish mansion with their aunt, Nora, after their parents died in an accident on a ski trip in Canada the winter before. Discovering Jumanji in the attic, Judy and Peter began playing. Their roles summon giant mosquitoes and swarms of monkeys. The game rules state everything will be restored when the game ends, so they continue playing. Peter then rolls a five, which releases a lion and a grown-up Alan. As Alan makes his way out, he meets Carl, who is now working as a police officer. Alan, Judy, and Peter go to the now-abandoned shoe factory and learn that Sam abandoned the business to search for his son after his disappearance until his 1991 death. Eventually, the factory closed, sending Brantford into economic decline. Realizing they need Sarah to finish the game, the three locate Sarah, now haunted by both Jumanji and Alan's disappearance, and persuade her to join them. Sarah's first move releases fast-growing carnivorous vines, and Alan's next move releases a big game hunter named Van Pelt, whom Alan first met in the game's inner world. The next roll summons a stampede of various animals, and a pelican steals the game. Peter retrieves it, but Alan is arrested by Carl. Back in town, the stampede wreaks havoc, and Van Pelt steals the game. Peter, Sarah, and Judy track Van Pelt to a discount store where they set booby traps to subdue him and retrieve the game, while Alan, after revealing his identity to Carl, is set free. When the four return to the mansion, it is now completely overrun by jungle wildlife. They release one calamity after another until Van Pelt arrives. When Alan drops the dice, he wins the game, which causes everything that happened as a result of the game to be reversed. Let's go back to the, to the start kind of with it. Um... Like I said, it's, they establish it as a haunted house, basically. There's this tale that gets told to them by the exterminator. He's like, yeah, chopped up chopped that up. guy and he's, he's <laughs> hid his body somewhere in this house. See you later, kids. <laughs> it's like, all right, buddy. <laughs> I heard critics of the time talk about how like this, like Roger Ebert, actually, I read, like gave it one and a half stars or something and said that it one was and a half like, thumbs. <laughs> yeah, was the, it, they did the two thumbs way up kind of thing. But yeah, I think it, on his website, one and a half stars. So he... 
talked about how the film was like too it was going to terrify children it was going to be too advanced for them he didn't feel like it was going to respond they were going to respond well to it and then it was also like a visual spectacle with not a lot of substance to it basically it's interesting to think of roger ebert responding to this and saying like kids aren't going to like it because it's too scary but like i liked that as a kid like i i felt like i was you know experiencing something new and you know creating new neural pathways that would make me like horror and being scared and, you know, challenging myself as a viewer. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I do. But then I do also admit that, like, watching it as an adult now, it's it's not the sharpest of, of stories. It kind of bounces around from one thing to the next. And some of it doesn't make a ton of yeah, sense. Yeah, it's pretty broad and kind of loosely held together. And the characters do things that are clearly in service of the plot sometimes, um, not necessarily realistic. Um, not everything is treated realistically. And let's just talk about changes here, right? So, like, we talked about this, like, added end cap and beginning where there's, like, time travel. But also, like, Peter becomes a, a monkey yeah. at one point, which is terrifying in, in and of itself. <laughs> uh, a lot of the things that are introduced, some of the threats are changed. Like, this Van Pelt character who, yeah. you know, like I said, being a foil. You got to talk about Van Pelt, man. <laughs> being a foil to the dad, being the same actor, like, kind of makes you think he's been, like, kind of battling yeah. with his dad this whole time in the jungle. I'll tell you what, man. A... a- a character whose main thing is he tries to murder you with a gun. Um, that doesn't play super well today. And I'm sure it wasn't great then either, but um, you know, they make a joke where he asks him, are you a postal worker? Implying that. Yeah. It was like, whole, that was like recent at the time, right? It had to be apparent, recent. Implying yeah. that maybe he's a mass shooter and we're having a little joke about it in this, you know, kids movie. Um, it's just so normalized. Forgoing paperwork, no wait periods. He's giving him like like full on killing machine guns. And- he gets like a modern, like scary ass gun that he is he is shooting throughout. Like it's an interesting thing for a kids movie to include. It's very American. Um, and yeah, considering you know how horrendous the gun violence has gone on to be and continue to be in this country uh this is not a great look in 2023 to look back on i mean this was probably pre-columbine though right so it's like different yeah i think columbine was like 98 or something in that range yeah so yeah kind of naive america here it's true it really i mean like it was that wasn't the first school shooting by any stretch but it did it did kind of change the way the country had to reckon with some of that stuff. Not that it necessarily made a lot of changes, but, uh, but in general, the dude's running around with like, he's running around with like an elephant gun from like the early 1900s. And then he trades it out for like the equivalent of the, in the modern day. And you're like, just no, no subtlety to this, to this hunter. And it's like, like, I mean, the rest of the movie is, is like fun creatures and stuff. And then you just have this guy with a gun who's trying to murder you. Like that, that's, it's just a weird vibe for this movie to get into. It's very strange. I agree. Other changes, uh, you know, I, I liked having David Allen Greer as Bentley, like running around. I thought he was funny. You know, his whole thing is, you know, he's this slapstick, like his car keeps getting more and more destroyed and he's driving around in it. Um, he's, 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 you know, the, the monkeys are fucking with him. The monkeys are fucking with everybody, which by the way. The faces on those monkeys, that's some uncanny valley shit. They, it was like they really wanted to make them look human so they could give them human expressions. But in taking this 
animal and giving it a human like expression, it gets horrifying in a hurry. <laughs> it really does. And I think it's they wanted it to look realistic enough and they wanted to show off the effects of the time. But yeah, it gets fucked up real quick. And then you have you have these characters like these monkeys are fucking unhinged for one. And they like are very smart. And then they go and watch the Wizard of Oz yeah. and they're like they're seeing the monkeys from the Wizard of Oz tear apart the scarecrow, which already terrified me. Again, as a kid I'm watching both things and I'm like, holy shit, same things happening here. Terrifying monkeys. And they see that and then they become just like they're just like, all right, that's it. The fucking lid's off. We're gonna kill we're gonna start killing people. They're like they, they basically tear the town apart. Shooting shotguns. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're blowing up shotguns and they're fucking jumping on cars and slamming into people. Well, it's and- a little bit of like um, Planet of the Apes, too, because when they're outside, like one of them seems to be in charge and like giving like it almost seems like he's giving orders like you go that way, you go this way. And then they all run off. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. And these these mosquitoes fucking scared me because it's like you get bit by this giant mosquito and you're just like down for the count. Yeah, A bunch of people are getting uh, bit by them, apparently. Every single thing that they were. I mean, the blind didn't really scare me that Although much. It looked it looked pretty wild, man. Like it, there's multiple versions of it. There's clearly a physical like puppet and like creation that looked pretty scary. Um, but then there's the CGI version of the lion, which I get. I think when you're doing an animal and you're making it look like an animal, it looked pretty good. It was it was the monkeys was the face that clearly was the problem trying to do the faces. Um, but like the, the lion, I think holds up. He looked pretty good. So I do want to talk about Paris shoes because the sign still is on display in Keene in New Hampshire. And um, Robin Williams was beloved by the, that city by Keene when he was there shooting. He like was, you know, gregarious met with people would go to restaurants people would see him around town and he actually was presented with the keys to the city by the mayor in 1994 and then after his death in 2014 keen residents uh created a makeshift memorial flowers and candles below the paris shoe sign and even organized a public screening of the film uh so yeah the sign's still there you can go see paris shoes in keen new hampshire that's cool man this is probably a good opportunity to talk a little bit about robin williams um, he was such a fixture for me growing up, you know, from Mrs. Doubtfire to like just, I mean, so many. The genie so, flubber. Yeah. yeah goes and, on then, and, on. and then um, what's that one where he's like the, the psychologist who's working with like Matt Damon? Oh, yeah. Um, Goodwill Hunting. Is that the name of that one? Goodwill yeah. Hunting. Yeah. You know, so like he, he, he's got some dramatic chops. Like he was such a such a fun person to watch. Um, was he in What Dreams May Come? Yeah, What Dreams May Come is excellent. Yeah. So he's such an interesting performer. And and it, that's not even to talk about him as a comedic oh, like, force as well. Hilarious. Like, he's like one of the most powerful comedic. Like he could turn a room. He just had that energy and he would like Mork and Mindy and then into uh, his comedic work as a stand up. I've, you know, his stuff is hilarious. And then and, I, I feel like I just hear good stuff about him all the time. Um, these days, like people, people, you know, find little stories about him just being a good person. Um, and so I looked into it a little bit because I hadn't really thought about, you know, him passing in a while. And then this movie brought it all back up to me again. And I read about how, um, after he committed suicide, they did an autopsy and they found that he was actually suffering from something called Lewy body disease. I had heard. Yeah. This has kind of been in the news recently, like within the past year. So apparently it's a pretty common form of dementia that, uh, affects like 0.4% of all adults, uh, it will end up developing this and there's no cure for it and it's degenerative and it sets in after you're 50, like some, at some point after 50 years old. And they don't know, like, why. There doesn't seem to be, like, a genetic component to it. Um, And apparently he was suffering from it. And one of the things that happens is you get severely depressed. Um, You start losing memory. And, and, you know, 
whether that causes the depression or if the depression is like another effect of the dementia or both, um, that's probably a contributing factor. I mean, it seems like to what was going on with him. And and I, I didn't know that. Like, I, I remember, like, I just thought he committed suicide. Like, I didn't know there was something going on with his brain. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think that it came out a bit later. And because originally, I remember a lot of people just talking about, like, you never know what someone's going through. And he's the, he seemed like the happiest person in the world. And like, he would he would light up a room like i said like he was he was always the first person to try to make people laugh and, and keep everything light that and, like and, you know i mean i i don't know if this is like a shitty thing to to say but like the the there's that like sad clown idea that we talk about where like comedians are often you know laughing on the outside but hiding a lot of sadness and it's kind of a cliche even to talk about but like there's some truth to that for for sure and i would just say in general within artistic spaces People suffering with depression and you not knowing it is super common. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think both of us are, are advocates for being more open with mental mental health s- struggles and um, being open to to finding help. And like I, I, coming back to the movie, there's even a moment where a kid who's like eight years old or whatever, our young Peter, says, uh, you know, you're going to have they're going to make you see a shrink to his sister. And she's like. And they're going to make you they're going to make you do that if you don't start talking soon. And like it's kind of a throwaway line, but like th- there's this weird implication that like even an 8-year-old child has this disdain for therapy, right? And calls them a shrink, right? Which is a kind of a derogatory term. And that's clearly like the uh, like the the writers coming through because no kid would actually say that that I can you know I, I just don't think you would say that. And then also you're instilling that in your audience. As a kid, I'm absorbing that and I'm going, yeah, you don't want to see a shrink like that's embarrassing. That's um, something to be avoided. And again, it's just that's those little things that like I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill molehill. And I know sometimes it might feel like that I'm doing that. But I just do notice this stuff, especially in kids movies where I'm like trying to piece back where some of the like toxic mentalities that I grew up with came from and like how I've had to unlearn them. And I think like resistance to therapy is one. And, and, and I think it's just, it's in a lot of media where it's like, be a man, you know, don't talk about your feelings. Let's, let's avoid going to therapy, all that stuff. And like, even though this movie undercuts it by the end, I think the, the you'd spend so much time with that being the like message. I don't know. It's interesting too, though, because you have a character who's in therapy in the in Sarah. Yeah, but it's it's like played as a joke a little bit. Yes, but then also she has worked through therapy about this event that really did happen. So right, and like trying to convince herself it didn't happen. So it's almost like you know, it, it's not just a joke. It's also like being played as 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 a mistake. Like she, it's like because it did happen. It was like she shouldn't have been doing that, and then um she's cured at the end and she, her life where she's had to see a therapist is erased in a sense. Not the best message, but it's also 95. So I don't know. And I agree with that. But, but like, and that's the point that you're making, right? Is that like, like that was part of it. Media is jumped on as like the, the proponent of it too, because it's like, it's part of it, right? It's a societal thing. It's like, we've part of a bigger, part of a bigger picture. and, And this movie fits in with it. Not that this movie is, is somehow responsible for all this stuff. It's not. The idea of a man not talking about his, his feelings isn't new to it's pervasive even film. It's absolutely pervasive. And and one other that I'll touch on just as we're already on this on this sort of 
path. Um, I found the the relationship between Alan and Sarah to be also kind of it's kind of regressive in a way. And and like I for a long time growing up as a kid had trouble imagining having a friendship with a woman that wasn't coded as a potential romantic relationship. And I'll own that. Like, it, and it took me a while to grow out of that and to realize that, like, you can be friends with with girls. And looking at movies like this, like, he, like, it's like it always develops into a romantic thing, right? Like, Alan and Sarah end up together. They end up kissing. And it's it's like, again, this movie is not at at fault for all of this. But if you look at a bunch of movies at the time, you'll notice this like the the you know, there's always a romance between a male, you know, between a man and a woman. And I would say that's still pretty much the case. man. And like, that's yeah, still yeah. the case. Like this is something that still goes on today. And like, I just I feel like we need more examples where they can just be friends and it doesn't have to turn into a relationship. Yeah, it feels refreshing when we get it that. really does. I think, you know, that's something that we get. Every now and again, I just think kids kids need to see it, man. People are very intrigued by romance as well. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a, definitely a big pull in people's minds. So it feels like the logical step sometimes. But and I understand that, and I understand that like there's something compelling about that. But like I, we've just seen it so many times now. Like I just want us to find other ways to tell stories, and I think it's important, especially in children's media, to like show that it's okay to just have a friend who happens to be a girl. Like, I think young boys in particular need to see that. I would have. I needed to see that as a kid. I'll be honest. So I'm just thinking about different parts of the movie, and there's the stampede at one point. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to look at this early CG and see, like, how they achieved it. And apparently they, they took, like, a giant rhinoceros hydraulic ram and rigged it to, like, slam through the library wall, and then it was replaced with, like, all CG and everything. Um, and then there's apparently a rumor at the time that the, an elephant was killed during one of the, the stampede scenes, but there were no live animals used on this film. Uh, so it was a CG effect, and, and like, um, I just want to put everybody at ease. There was no elephant that died on this okay. film. Um, yeah. And there's also the, the I, you know, the, you notice the one that's kind of lagging behind, and it's got, like, its own little personality. Yeah. That was like apparently like a seat. It was a glitch at the time. Uh, like something as far as like frame rates didn't work with that specific one. So they left it in and gave it its own sound effects and stuff and made it its own little character. You know, I think moments like that are interesting to note with especially with like happy accidents. Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. And then also Robin Williams, he, he was talking about like acting alongside these CG effects. <laughs> he likened it to taking LSD because you have to hallucinate everything. <laughs> It's just funny to, to hear him talking about that. And then you hear like as time goes on, people talking about acting to tennis balls and blue screens and all this other stuff. He he was doing it like on a, on a true set without green screen and just basically saying like you're just hallucinating all of this. So speaking of special effects, the plant effects I thought were really cool, right? It's kind of what is it? Little Shop of Horrors. Very, yeah. Got that big carnivorous plant trying to like eat you. And that's pretty scary for a kid's movie. I could see like that might've been yeah. some of the stuff that it was- can like shoot like darts in your yeah. neck and shit too. Like it's like all of that is really scary. And you're like, man, if, it just feels so dangerous as a kid. All of it. Totally. Does. And, and that's, I think that's part of the appeal of it is the, the danger, but it's kind of cool to see this Robin Williams character who has kind of become like a heroic badass, like, fighter who can who can take on and all the stuff of the jungle 
Um, but I mean, I had so many questions for him. I wanted the characters to be like, where, like, where were you? Are there people there? Well, cause clearly there's the hunter, but have you like, have you been interacting with other human beings or are you, are you like fully jungle raised? Because you can talk pretty well for someone who was raised by in the jungle. Yeah. He just, ke- he just kept talking to himself. That's what I kept telling myself is that's how he continued to <laughs> like remember how to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of different ideas come to mind. He was so young, clearly crafted his own clothing at some that point. That hat, man. I'm glad he took that thing off immediately because that looks silly as hell. <laughs> It's so wild, yeah. And then he leaves it like on his parents' gravestone. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's a fitting tribute, but your little turtle hat. But he knows everything in the jungle already. He like is familiar. He's like, oh, you got to be aware of this. And that's not always thunder and this and that. And he's always got a comment to make. And it's like, so he's familiar with all of, he survived all of these catastrophic things from a very young age. Like, it's pretty amazing. And yeah, he would be a badass able to wrestle a giant crocodile. Yeah. I, I kind of liked that as a kid. I got, to be honest, it was like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of cool to see him become this this badass. I don't know. I could I kind of imagined like you know if you if you did go live in a in a you know, it, I, I I always imagined it's like a fantasy realm, and it seems like that's the route they took it. But like honestly, in the movie, it's just kind of like he goes to the jungle. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So so apparently, Robin Williams also wouldn't let his children watch the movie at the time. So. Interesting. That's how he felt that it was it was you know it went pretty far. Yeah. Well, I, and the crocodile is pretty scary. I will I will grant you that that whole sequence. Like I said, the set work is pretty amazing. Truly, production design and yeah, I was I was I was you know like we said with the Mario movie, like they don't really make movies like this anymore. Like you know some some of the time they do, but out of necessity they were they were kind of using the best of their ability at the time. And it's it, looking back at it, there's something really tactile about it. Well, getting stuck in the ground for that one sequence where he gets like absorbed by the the floor and it's supposed to be like quicksand, yeah. and then it then it hardens. What was there was some movie where that happened, like Philadelphia Experiment or something about like there was some horrific movie where they they showed that where a bunch of like sailors got like molded to the to a ship or something. Um, Yeah, it sounds very Junji Ito for sure. Yeah, it's horrifying. And like I was thinking about that as I'm watching this, (laughs) like he's he's now part of the floor and like he's so calm about it. But like it's pretty fucking terrifying. He's trying to be calm for the kids. Yeah. Oh, something else that I wanted to mention too, as we're as we're getting to this last bit, uh, Van Alsberg approved of the film despite the changes from the book and it not being as idiosyncratic and peculiar, declaring that quote the film is faithful in reproducing the chaos level that comes with having a jungle animal in the house. It's a good movie. Sure. Well, you want to read the final bit of plot? Alan and Sarah return to 1969 just in time for Alan to reconcile with Sam, who tells him that he does not have to attend boarding school. Alan also admits his responsibility for damaging the conveyor belt after real. So interesting. They were more worried about the conveyor belt than the shoe. I didn't, I wasn't processing that ever (laughs) after realizing that they have memories of the game. Alan and Sarah throw Jumanji into a river, then share a kiss in an alternate version of the present. Alan and Sarah are married and expecting their first child. Alan's parents are still alive and Alan is now successfully running the family business. Alan and Sarah meet Judy, Peter, and their parents, Jim and Martha, for the first time during a Christmas party. Alan offers Jim a job and convinces them to cancel their upcoming ski trip, averting their deaths. Meanwhile, two young girls hear drum beats while walking on a beach. Jumanji is seen lying partially buried in the sand. This movie gets so fucking mind-bending at the end. So this, th- it breaks. No, it breaks itself. It doesn't It doesn't make any sense at the end. So It's so weird, man. It, it undoes... So, 
The idea is it undoes everything, including returning them back in time to this 1969. Starting in the their present at the time. So yeah. the house is repaired. Yeah. Everything's back to normal and they're, they're good. And the gun, the new gun that he bought. Yeah. Still gets yeah absorbed into the game i assume that that's because he's like holding it i guess but but yeah agreed i thought that was bullshit too (laughs) yeah so he and the fire the shot gets fired and it like dissolves into jumanji it was a cool effect i guess yeah then we jump back to 1969 and we see all of that and our two main characters that we've been following the whole movie are like evaporate from existence they don't exist anymore their whole backstory is undone you know the butterfly effect where like things change? Like <laughs> yeah. that's what this gets into is where it's like, okay, and I'm not even talking about Aston Kutcher's butterfly effect. I'm talking about like we're now in a scenario where they have to live their lives. First of all, they're children with, with the minds with of the adults. Minds which of is adults ho- which horrifying is, in the first place. That is a fucking wild concept. And she even says it like, I'm gonna, you know, let's I, something I've been wanting to do, and she kisses him, and it's like, okay, this is getting weird, man. <laughs> yeah. So you're in this, yeah, oof. Uh, and then he has a conversation with his dad and I'm like, this is so weird. You guys are like the same age in, in mentally right now with this conversation. Yeah. And, and she kind of implies that like maybe the memories are going to fade, which makes it a little better because. But then at the end, they clearly didn't lose their memories. They didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Because they remember these two kids. All right. So this is where it gets fucky, right? So, yeah. so he, they're adults that have to then go through their lives normally and they need to follow the same path that they did before even though Alan was in the jungle because if anything changes, then then these two kids never exist. I guess. The butterfly effect wise, right? So, Well, I don't know. So they exist. What do you mean they don't exist? Butterfly effect, that's the implication is like you make a small change and then like some ramifications way later down the line. I see what you're saying. So so just, well, I mean, world history in general, you don't know how you would affect it if, if, that, if yeah. that's all true. Well, and Sarah has, again, Sarah has knowledge of, of yeah, she lived possible tragedies coming up and... Can she stop them now? And does that? You it's know? like you almost need a whole new movie for like their yeah. lives, and it's a weird one. Um, and yeah, like that's got kind of shit. Is like it's almost too big for a movie like this. So they just they just jump over it. They could have easily just said everybody forgot everything, and then have a scene where they sort of like cross paths with these kids, and they're like, oh. But instead, they remember everything, yeah. and that makes it super fucking crazy. It's really weird. And then yeah, them at the end, you know, trying to convince them to not go to their to to their skiing trip where they would end up dying it's strange man like the message is i guess what i'm getting at is strange instead of learning to live with your trauma this movie just heals like reverses all of it and says like none of this ever happened yeah so arcs aren't a thing in this movie basically all arcs have been reverted and they're the characters there's no character growth that happens for either kid because they don't even know. Yeah, they have no growth in any way. Yeah, because they're just undone and, 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 and healed in a sense. And like their trauma's taken away and they don't, which is so weird, man. It's like, it's such a weird um, message to kids watching. Yeah. Who like, well, you put yourself in the shoes of a kid who had lost a parent. Yeah. And you're like, you're, you're, you're identifying with them and then it's just magically undone. I don't know. Sure. It's weird. Yeah. I agree. It's definitely messed up. And yeah, it gets so it gets so wonky with the time travel and stuff. And and Carl Bentley, the character, is there in the house, and he's now like a friend of the family. I guess I don't know. It's all strange. Yeah. Did he ever make those Jumpman like fucking original Nikes? Yeah. Like- I guess I guess we don't know. It seemed like his life was improved, and he didn't become a cop. Was the implication I got? Yeah. I don't know. Alan calls his dad, and his dad's kind of like. I don't know. He's kind of talking his ear off and he's like, I got to go, dad. 
Yeah, I'm Santa Claus now. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really know what it's saying, I think, at the end here, man. It gets it gets real messy in a hurry. Interesting concepts to bring to light for a child, though, because I was thinking about this stuff even when I was a kid. Like, oh, these people have the memories, but they were kids and they were adults and they're all that stuff. I thought about all that as a kid. Yeah, so. it's pretty wild. I don't know. I, I don't know how to feel about it, honestly. Like it. It's just slapped on at the end. Like it doesn't really engage with it too too seriously. But that is the final message that it leaves us with at the end of the movie, is that you know Judy Judy and Peter don't remember anything that happened. They are now, you know, against their will, erased in a weird way, right? Yeah. So ultimately, like they were all excited to finish the game and get her. And yeah, so the relationship they have with their aunt yeah. isn't really there too. So all of that's gone. Their relationship with these characters is erased. It's very weird. <laughs> all right. Well, we got to just move on from that. Apparently, just cope with the fact. Yeah. That let's, they... I don't. I don't know what to do with it. Honestly. Yeah. Fully honest, I don't know what to do. With it's. It. It's also funny too because this movie is pretty well loved. I would say. Like I think. I think. You know, review wise, it doesn't have great scores on like Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic and all yeah, that. Yeah, audience favorite. Audience favorite, yeah. And it's you know, I think a lot of people respond. And you know, sequels get made and they continue on. I you know, I'd be interested to see how they handle the idea of like this magical world, but also time travel being a possibility if you yeah don't play through the entire game. And- I don't know, man. You said you saw the movie. Is it is it take place in the same universe? Like this movie's canon? Yeah. Yeah, I think they mentioned Alan at one point. Wow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd be curious to watch that. I think at some point we will as a bonus episode. And and it's not like a spoiler. I think you see this in the trailer. Uh, Jumanji has somehow been turned into a video game. Now. Yeah, I remember that in the trailer. Okay, yeah. All right, man. So the last thing we have to do here is vote for which we liked better, which was the better version in our opinions, the the book or the movie here. I took a lot from the novel. I think it's got a great art style. I think it's really great bones for a story. I think, you know, it's it does extremely well, achieves what it set out to do is be a, a memorable children's novel that's, uh, you know, gets kids thinking in unique ways. And I like that it seems like with Zathora as well that Van Ellsberg is kind of a, a, a board game person and like <laughs> is, yeah. you know, putting out the word for board games, which I think is great too. So I hope... I like I said I think it may have shaped some of my board game love too uh, in some weird way or at least the film did from from his you know brainchild so I I took a lot out from it and I and I like the art style but it's kind of just it's a children's novel so there's not a lot to dig into but again it's got enough there to to enjoy it as a children's story so in this case I'm going to take the movie just because they did flush it out in interesting ways and as much as it's sort of this like mind-bending story-breaking sort of premise that they've that they've added on a lot of the effects look cool i love robin williams performance in this movie i you know it meant a lot to me as a kid and i still enjoyed it today um in general i think like we've we've said a little bit with mario i think mario is maybe a more bombastic version but they don't make movies like this anymore really that it's kind of this mid-budget like i guess like you can see a big budget children's film but this is like kind of in the same vein of like it's a children's film, but then it's like a little scary for children and it's got some adult sort of commentaries being made. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate it for those reasons. And yeah, it, it does. Like if you see this and you see the newer Jumanji, it this one feels like it has a lot more kind of like texture and substance to it in some ways. And that one, you know, it feels like a big budget blockbuster movie mm. coming out today. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm on the fence about it, honestly. I, I like both of them okay. I, I agree that the m- book is like a little underwhelming as an adult going back to it, but 
Um, I did find things that rubbed me the wrong way in the movie coming back to it. Um, and I can, I can, I can sense some stuff that didn't age well. And, you know, I've touched on it throughout. I, I guess I'll give it to the book, um, because it, it, I think has stood the test of time a little better. Um, even though granted, uh, you know, the whole premise is a little, is a little tricky. Um, you know, it, it definitely exoticizes the idea of a jungle as if it, you know, a fantasy world. Um, but ultimately I think it's a fun story. Um, I, I wouldn't have issues showing this movie to a kid if I had a kid. Um, I just would have to have a conversation with them afterward, I think, where we talked about some of the themes. <laughs> um, and that's the trick of like, you know, talking about children's literature and children's movies is like you're, you're hitting very young audience and, and, you know, it's amazing how much kids do take away from movies like this and imprint on yeah. them. To be honest, like if, if I had a kid, I feel like every movie I saw with that kid, I'd be having a conversation about whether it's like good things, bad things. Did this movie, you know, stimulate you or is it just something, you know, substance wise that it's like, you know, flashy? I, you know, I, I'm so curious to, to get the perspective of a child when I do have one, you know? Yeah, well, I'm not planning to have any. But um, I, I I know you're. It's still a maybe for you. So maybe one day yeah, you'll, you'll get that experience. Um, all right, man. I think that's I think that's it for Jumanji. Um, it sounds like we're kind of a split decision here at the end. But you know, I, I never want, I never feel bad giving it giving the credit to the author and, and the originator of this idea. And it was an important book for me growing up. So I think that that feels fair to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Um, I, I know we're still creeping towards 100 reviews on Apple, which I would love to get to 100. I noticed we have you know a decent amount on Spotify accruing too, so we'd love to get more ratings on there. Um, and yeah, we'd appreciate just telling your friends if this is a podcast you enjoy, let them know. And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're also on TikTok and YouTube. And make sure you subscribe on YouTube and, and like the videos. I think that's a, an important avenue there. And we, we do post uh, YouTube shorts as well. So you can see our faces every now and again with some, some short clips. We've been recording video this year and, and doing some fun stuff with that. And you'll only see that on, uh, on YouTube and on TikTok. So definitely check that out. Um, also, if you wanted to support this podcast, we've mentioned Patreon a few times. Patreon.com slash Ink to Film. That's where we do bonus episodes. It's where we did our coverage of Super Mario Brothers uh, very recently. And one day we will do the, the new Jumanji. So if you want to hear our thoughts on that, let us know. And uh, check it out on Patreon. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. This has been fun. Uh, we've done a lot of kids' books. We've done a lot of uh, these kind of throwback movies. So... Uh, I don't know. We'll have to find something something to change pace. Um, I know we also did, like, you know, a very serious All Quiet on the Western Front, too. So I'm not sure yeah. where we're going to go next. We honestly haven't decided. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll post about it on social media once we, once we pick something. But uh, thanks for listening. And until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.